I invite you to come with me to 2 Peter chapter 2. Very few of you might be looking saying, no, he doesn't have his tie on. It's a sign of something, some kind of theological decline or something like that. Really, it's a sign that it was about 110 bazillion, it felt like, over uh, there. So it was getting distracting to me, and I didn't want it to be uh, distracting uh, to you. Second Peter is a letter. Um, it's not a theological treatise, it's a, it's a letter, it's full of theology and truth and teaching about God, but it's helpful for us to think about it as a letter, because when you normally engage with a letter, you do the whole thing, not kind of part by part. Understandably, when we go through it in a series like this, we go section by section. But to really understand it, it's very helpful for us to have the whole thing in mind. And so I would encourage you as we continue to go through this series to keep reading, it's only three chapters, keep reading through 2 Peter. And so I thought it would be helpful for us to go back and kind of think of what's happened so far. First of all, he started with a biblically rich greeting, reminding them who they are in Christ and who Christ is to them. And then he's given them this pastoral call to spiritual progress. Then he ended chapter 1, and of course, remember too, there aren't chapters when the Bible was originally written. They were added in about the 1500s, these divisions, chapters, verses, to help us, you know, make our way through the Scriptures. So they're a helpful tool. But there was no chapter 2 in Peter's letter per se, not a heading like that. But at the end of the section that we know as chapter 1, he's talked about why it is that they should respond positively to his message. And he said, because it comes from the inspired prophets. And he says who they were. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we can have the confidence that in our prophetic scriptures, which is our Old Testament, what the prophets said, the Holy Spirit led them to say, and then to write down. And so you should pay attention to Peter, he says, because of my own eyewitness apostolic authority, I saw myself the transfiguration. I saw the resurrected and risen Jesus but also because it is rooted in the Old Testament prophetic revelation where the Holy Spirit moved these men along to write what they write and to say what they said. That sets us up for what comes next in chapter 2 because then Peter starts to pivot. He is going to address some very serious false teaching that has begun to impact the Christian's the congregations that he's writing to. And he says, but there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. And they will secretly introduce, they'll insinuate destructive heresies, denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. 
Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories, more literally just with deceptive words. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. Now, I know we're in church, and I know we've got open Bibles in front of us, but what do you do really with language like that? Three times in these verses, Peter has used this really strong language about destruction. How can a doctrine, even if it's a false one, even if they're wrong on it, how can a doctrine be destructive? What can it harm? What can it hurt? What can it destroy? I mean, we live in a time when I was younger, kind of before the postmodern times, even then it was a matter of when it comes to religious opinions, it was really, really rude and tacky to ever suggest that someone, when it came to their theology, was wrong. But you know, when it comes to religion, you know what really matters when it comes to your beliefs? That you are what? Sincere. I heard that all the time. It was just, again, wrong. Ah, that's combative. That's hateful. Now in our postmodern times, we say to one another with straight face, well, that's kind of your truth and my truth. And, you know, these are heavy-duty philosophical concepts now that dominate kind of the certainly university campuses, but really very much now the way the person on the street thinks about things too. And I think that the church and Christians like us have sort of been influenced by that sort of mushy way of thinking about theology and doctrine and those kinds of beliefs. Well, not Peter. For Peter, there are opinions, and that's what the word heresies originally meant, there are opinions that will destroy you and others. And so that's what I want. If we're going to really understand Peter in this letter, we're going to have to get over maybe an undetected worldliness that makes it feel like Peter is just overblown and overdone in what he's saying and how he's saying it. This is the world that Peter inhabits and that we need to inhabit if we are going to learn from 2 Peter. And so he says, There arose also among you alongside the true prophets like Isaiah and Elijah and Jeremiah. There also arose false prophets, just as there will be false teachers among you. Where did Peter get this? Jesus. Jesus himself, and you know, a lot of times scholars today, and you'll see it on the PBS specials, try to kind of pit Paul versus Jesus. It really is ridiculous if you, you know, pay attention to the teachings of both. Jesus was the one who first said, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to what? destruction, and many enter through it. 
The highway to hell is crowded. Small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. And do you know one of the reasons that so many get it wrong and so few get it right? That's what Jesus says next. Watch out for false prophets. False in what way? False in that they're bogus counterfeit. They're not really speaking from God or commissioned by him. False also in the content of what they're telling you about God. And it's Jesus who says, if you're going to be my disciple, you are going to habitually have to watch out for people who call themselves spokesmen for God who in fact are counterfeit. They come to you dressed like what? Sheep, like believers. But inwardly, actually, they are ferocious wolves. There again, can you imagine going to a minister's meeting in downtown Lansing, including a lot of liberals who don't really believe the Bible and the Word of God and the true gospel anymore, and, you know, just kind of think, oh, there's a ferocious wolf, and there's one. It's a biblical category, but for us, I think, nobody is in the category. Nobody today, we just don't think in those terms anymore. And yet, Jesus and Peter and Paul, think of what Paul writes to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. As he's leaving them, this is his final word to them. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, that's where many of them will come from, they won't be, you know, secularists, even from within your own congregations, your own ministries, and parachurch ministries. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So, Paul says, be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Paul is not, going to get to add, is not going to be asked to do devotions for the Positive Hits radio station. Three years I kept warning you, night and day with tears. That would have been a fun ministry. That would have been a... You know, for us, it's like, again, chill out. Why would it matter that much? And that's what we've got to try to understand. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, doctrines that destroy. How can a religious opinion be that destructive? What real harm can it do? What can it actually destroy? And according to Peter and the rest of the New Testament, false teaching on fundamental matters destroys real faith and thus a person's possibility 
and prospect for rightly relating to God, and that means it will destroy them. Think about what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 1. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly discerning the God who called you and have chosen another gospel, which is no gospel at all. Then he says, but even if I or an angel from heaven come and preach to you a gospel that is different than the gospel I originally preached to you when I planted the church, if that happens, what does he want to have happen to the person preaching a different gospel? What does he say? Let him be accursed. Go to hell. And again, it's just like, wait, come on. Why? Well, think it through. In Paul's understanding, and Peter's, and John's, and Jesus, the gospel is the good news truth that tells you the truth about God and how to get right with him again. It tells you about his greatness and his grace, his majesty and his mercy. It tells you that he is the creator and God and judge of all, but that he's loving so he sent his son to be our savior and the cross and the cross alone is the way that that salvation happens so that the only way to receive the salvation is by faith alone. You can't add in works like the Galatians did, the Galatian false teachers were doing. If you add in works, it's not grace anymore, it's not faith anymore, it's not saving anymore. So the Galatian error would lead people to think that they were saved when in fact that they were lost. And now they're even worse off because they're ima they imagine that they've been saved. Why? Because they listened to the gospel of the people who were preaching the to them in Galatia. 2 Corinthians 11, Paul makes clear that there are some who preach a different Jesus, talk about a different spirit, and a different gospel. But they still use the language. They still use the terminology. That can't reassure you by itself. They have to be defined in biblical ways. In fact, go to 2 Peter chapter, I mean, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and after he said that earlier in the chapter, see what he says about his uh, religious teaching opponents in verse 13. He's already said false Christ, false spirit, false gospel. Now he says, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen masquerading as apostles of Christ, and no wonder for Satan himself masquerades as what? You know, it's odd to me. How do we think Satan's going to show himself in popular media? Red, tail, pitchfork, yellow teeth? No. When he dresses up to fool the professing people of God, how does he show up according to this? An angel. An angel of light. So be on your guard. There are doctrines that destroy. 
What then was the specific doctrine that Peter is talking about in this letter? Well, again, if, you, you know, if you've read the whole letter, you realize that what these teachers were saying is Jesus is not going to come back a second time. There's no second coming in glory. There's no last day judgment of Jesus. And therefore, Peter and Paul, your preoccupation with holiness and living a godly life, it just doesn't matter. Jesus has already come back, they were saying. He has come wherever his teaching and his ethic is embraced. There Jesus has returned. So chill out when it comes to this fiery judgment day to come and, you know, go ahead and live in the freedom of a misunderstood and misinterpreted grace. That was pretty much their error. And, you know, there are pieces of biblical teaching in all of that. But it is such a distortion. It is such a, a mangling of the actual truth from God about these things that it ends up being destructive doctrine. And Peter says it's a matter of their denying the master who bought them. It's the language of redemption. They've been bought by the blood of Jesus. But the way that they're living now and teaching and acting in such disobedience to the fundamental lordship of Christ, Peter says they're just denying. It's, they're renouncing their entire allegiance and devotion to Christ. As Paul wrote to Titus, there are people who claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Verse 10 says, They follow the corrupt desire of the flesh, and what's the other characteristic? They despise authority. Literally, again, the word lordship. You can talk about a benign, non-demanding spirituality that accepts me and leaves me just the way that I am, and God is going to help me and do this for me and do that for me, and they are with you. But if you start talking about lordship, if you start talking about coming under the authority of God, even though it's, the, it's our true glorious freedom, there is such an aversion. It totally turns them off. They despise authority. And so we just need to realize that there will always be out there something calling itself Christianity that isn't really the same thing, even though they talk about Jesus, the gospel, the spirit, all of that. Well, how will we know the difference? Peter's already told us, and he'll tell us more throughout this letter, it's got to be true to the prophetic revelation that came to the scriptures from the prophets and to the apostolic, that's our Old Testament, and to the apostolic revelation that came through people like Peter and he talks about Paul who were eyewitnesses to things like the transfiguration and the resurrection and Jesus' exaltation. It's got to be true to that revelation. Otherwise, it's what these false teachers do. It's, it's, it's fabricated, Peter says. They've just made it up. And again... That's a very prevalent practice in our time. I don't know how many times I've heard people say, you know, I like to think of God as fill in the blank. Remember, a God of our own making, 
That's the biblical definition of an idol. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image is the second commandment. They can be made of metal or they can be mental images that we've made up ourselves. And they're not the true God. So true Christianity is faithful to this word and to every word of this book. And so real Christianity, unlike the licentiousness, and that's an old word, we, we're losing good words for describing some of what the Bible describes. And one of them is licentiousness. It dates you to try to use it, but I don't know a great substitute. It's the idea, I've got a license to do whatever I want to do. That's their licentious ways that he's talking about. But real Christianity says things like this. But among you Christians... There must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. Really, that word, it's porneia, fornication. Or of any kind of impurity, or of greed. Because these are out of place for God's holy people. For of this you can be sure. No fornicating, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God, which is to say, they're not going to go to heaven. And almost as Paul anticipates, someone's going to find a way to teach around that. And Christians, professing Christians, have found ways to try to teach around that. So Paul adds this. Let no one deceive you with empty words. They'll speak words. They try to rationalize and explain. But Paul says there is nothing to them of substance. They are empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. False teachers don't say things like that. They don't teach like that. They don't tell you that. And by the way, you can qualify as a false teacher in biblical terms if, even though much of what you say is right and true to Scripture, but you have the habit of leaving out a lot about the call to repentance, about warnings of judgment and wrath to come, if you're always grinning and smiling and telling the positive and telling people contrary to what Jesus says about carrying your cross that you can have your best life now, you can still be a false teacher even if a lot of the things that you say might sound like scripture. Of course, what makes all of this far worse is the impact that these bogus teachers and counterfeit theologians have on others. Verse 2, many will follow their unbridled living. Sad thing is that word for follow is the exact same word when Jesus says, follow me. Some do that, but some do this. They follow this kind of false teaching with its permission to do whatever you want and still regard yourself spiritual. But by so doing, Peter says, the way of truth will be maligned. It'll be brought into disrepute. Real Christianity, and Jesus was the first to say it, it's a way. It's a way of living. A way of thinking and behaving 
and, and conducting yourself. It's a whole way of living. But when someone lives like this instead, the way of truth ends up being maligned. And people think, really? That's Christianity? You profess to follow Jesus and you're living like this? That's Christianity? He says more about these false shepherds who fleece the flock instead of really shepherding them. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you. Now, realize this. When he says greed, it doesn't just mean money. Not very many people today would make the calculation, hmm, I want to be rich, I think I'll become a clergyman. But you can be greedy for other things as a pastor. You can be greedy for popularity. You can be greedy for influence. You can be greedy for being well-liked and well-regarded. And so, these false teachers use you for their advantage. When they're in that mode, they are going to shrink back from telling some things that you may not want to hear. Why? Because if you've got a pastor or a preacher or a teacher who is telling you stuff you don't want to hear, what are you going to do? What do people do? They go somewhere else. What pastor wants that? They'll exploit you for their own advantage with their deceptive words. Go with me to Jeremiah chapter 23 because this is to me the classic passage in the Old Testament about false prophets. It was true of the false prophets of Jeremiah's day, of Peter's day, and of ours. But it is to me a striking passage. Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 16. This is what Yahweh Almighty says. Don't listen to what the prophets are prophesying to you. It's pretty amazing when God says that. They're supposed to be a spokesman. It's gotten so bad that the Lord says, don't listen to the prophets. They fill you with false hopes. They speak visions from their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise me, how? By the way that they live. They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord says you'll have peace. Something good is going to happen to you. And to all who follow the stubbornness of their hearts, they say, no harm will come to you. But which of them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see or to hear his word? Who has listened and heard his word? See, the storm of the Lord will burst out in wrath, a whirlwind swirling down on the heads of the wicked. They'll never tell you that, but it's still true. It's still going to happen. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he fully accomplishes the purposes of his heart. 
In days to come, you'll understand it clearly, I didn't send these prophets, yet they've run with their message. I didn't speak to them, yet they've prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, they would have proclaimed my words to my people and it would have turned them from their evil ways and from their evil deeds. Verse 25, I've heard what the prophets say who prophesy lies in my name. They say, I had a dream. I had a dream. How long will this continue in the hearts of these lying prophets who prophesy the delusions of their own minds? Let the prophet who had a dream recount the dream. But let the one who has my word speak it faithfully. For what has straw to do with grain, declares the Lord? Isn't my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces? Therefore, declares the Lord, I'm against the prophets who steal from one another words supposedly from me. Yes, declares the Lord, I'm against the prophets who wag their own tongues and yet declare, the Lord declares. Indeed, I'm against those who prophesy false dreams, declares the Lord. They tell them and lead my people astray with their reckless lies, yet I did not send or appoint them. They do not benefit these people in the least. That's sobering to me. And so I have to say one more time, we live in a time when professing, evangelical, allegedly Bible-believing Christians seem to be very confused about where and when you can hear from the Lord. And Peter and Jeremiah and Paul make it clear, you'd better get that answer right. Or you are going to be led around by someone who's had a vision, someone who's had a dream. When we've got 66 inspired books that the Bible says are all we need for life and godliness. Well, how's it all going to turn out? Peter says, and the NIV has, their condemnation has long been hanging over them. That's a paraphrase. Literally, it says, their condemnation isn't idle. They're getting away with it. They're having an impact. They're winning people over. So apparently God's not going to intervene. Peter says, you misunderstood their condemnation, their judgment isn't idle. It's already active in the punishment of other false teachers in God's providence. Who knows how that's being worked out? And it's gathering up for these false teachers. And he says, their destruction is not asleep. In the Old Testament, implicit in the phrase, God sleeps, is a disbelief in his existence. Peter says... No. You have misinterpreted when God is patient and doesn't immediately judge, you make a massive mistake if you imagine that that means he's never going to judge or it's not going to be serious. And you know, we have to be concerned about this in our own lives as professing Christians. Some go a long time in a deliberate 
disobedience and defiance of the Lord's word and will. And nothing has really happened. Nothing has really, there's no been real judgment. And you can misinterpret that. You can massively misunderstand that. Peter says, they say, where's this promised coming of his? And they misunderstand. They deliberately forget some things. God's acted before decisively in worldwide judgment. Remember the flood? He's going to act again. The delay doesn't mean what you think it means. It doesn't mean he's indifferent and isn't going to judge. What does it mean, according to Peter? He's patient. He's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. But if we refuse to repent, then we will perish. False teachers won't tell you these things, won't remind you of these things, won't realize that, yes, it's sobering and it sounds serious, but what's at stake is so massively important that ministries will sound like Paul's warning night and day, even with tears. And so, as we draw to a close, how can a doctrine destroy? Why does theology matter this much? Because our doc- some say, oh, I'm not a theologian. I just love the Lord. Neat. Tell me about him. Well, he's the son of God. Oh, you're doing theology. Well, he died for my son. Oh, you're doing theology again. How are you going to live to please him? Well, I, read, I know I'm supposed to read my Bible. Oh, you're doing theology again. The choice isn't between you're going to be a theologian or you're not going to be a theologian. The choice is going to be I'm going to be a theologian who shapes my thinking about God by the words that he's inspired or I'm going to be like those who have a God of my own making. And it might not get as seriously grotesque as the false preachers were describing, but it's still going to be a distortion. Is that what you want? Theology are your thoughts about God. If you really love him, you're like, you know, I like to think about pleasing him in the most minimal ways I possibly can. So I don't attend to this word very much. I do this as little as possible. That doesn't sound right, does it? Truth, theology, it's receiving or not receiving God's own words to us, addressing us to bring us into salvation and then to live knowing and experiencing his love and his guidance and his blessing, living for his glory and serving him. That's what theology does. And that's what false doctrine destroys. That's why it matters so much. When you get the theology right about the second coming, like these false teachers most certainly didn't, how does it go? Peter writes at the end of the letter, verse 11 of chapter 3, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat, but in keeping with his promise... 
We are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness is at home. So then, dear friends, don't get confused by the false teacher. Dear friends, since you're looking forward to this and you've got it right about the second coming, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you will teach us through this letter from Peter that doctrine does matter because it's all about what we think about you and how to relate to you. And that there will always be a thousand voices. The ones that we need to be wary of are the ones that aren't being true to your word. But telling about their own dreams and ideas and images and imaginings. Help us to be those who look constantly to the inspired revelation that came through prophets and apostles. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand together as we close today.